0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter eleven this morning. Mark chapter eleven. As I said, I'm going by faith here. The Lord will give me grace. I find that my voice holds out unless I get too excited. Uh, So (laughs) we could be in for some trouble here. So uh, I'm trying to uh, keep it under, bring it under a little bit here today, uh, if if possible. So we go to Mark eleven. It's our pleasure uh, to gather together again today and to look closely at the Bible. We've been going section by section, verse by verse, through the Scripture, and to me it's been a joy to be able to study a gospel, the gospel of Mark. It struck struck me this week as I was preparing for what we're going to do today and looking at the text of Scripture, it struck me that uh, some people might look, look at us and think that we're strange or odd for what we're doing here today. They say something like, man, that is an unusual group of people, unusual church with abnormal people. I mean, look at them, pen in hand, Bible in laps, minds engaged, poring over every word of the text. How odd. So why do we look at the Bible this way? I just wanted to remind you about this before we get into it. Well, in one sense, on a literary level, the Bible's a book like every other book. It's made up of nouns and verbs, modified by adjectives and adverbs, connected with conjunctions and prepositions to communicate meaning. But in another sense, the Bible is a book unlike any other book on the planet. It is, God, it is it's a book breathed out by God himself without error in its disclosure of God and his ways to us. I've had the opportunity to train young men for pastoral ministry for probably the last 20 years or so in various locations. And occasionally I get a little bit of kickback from them as I'm training them and I lay out my expectations for them and how they would handle the text of scripture. They'll say things like, that would just take too long. That's too much work. Pastor Brent, there are shortcuts, don't you know? I mean, do you really need to know Greek and Hebrew? Can't you just like this? Thank you, seminary president here. (laughs) Do you really need to analyze the text on that level as a preacher if you're only going to speak from it in public 30 minutes on a Sunday? And I say... Well, maybe not if you're speaking from a newspaper or an online news story in English. Maybe not if you're trying to communicate the meaning of some work of literature like Shakespeare or Homer. But this is the Bible, God's holy text to us. And so men and women, that should not just drive the preacher, it should drive the hearer, you, the hearer of the preached Word of God. Amen. So if we could just give as much attention to the text as we give to binge watching our favorite Netflix series or playing our video, favorite video game or our profile on social media or to the commentators on Fox News or CNN, you choose. Imagine what we could learn about the text and imagine what the text would reveal to us about Jesus. And so this is why we go through it, verse by verse, line by line, to understand God's holy word to us. And so today, it's our privilege to look at the text of Scripture to learn about the Son, the Son of God. The Son of God in this text. So are you ready? Okay. Last week, we saw that Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem and is giving the greeting of a king. I called it the triumphal entry. I'm not good at names for sections. I just parrot them unapologetically, sermon titles from other people, the triumphal entry of Jesus. He gets to Jerusalem, and he's greeted as a king. This is his big moment, and Jesus does not disappoint us. Remember, he has it all under control. He has foresight to think about finding a cult and fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is not surprised by anything that occurs. He's not duped by the false praise of the people around him. And we we learned last week, no moment is too big for Jesus. He's got it all under control. As we come to the text this morning, we come to another important event in the life of Jesus, the cleansing of the temple. Here in Mark, we'll record this story for us in Mark chapter 11. And this story, the cleansing of the temple, is surrounded by an obscure tale about a barren fig tree. It's typical fashion, then, this story will occur in three parts. It'll start and end with a story of the fig tree, and in the middle of the Markin sandwich, right, in the middle of the sandwich, will be the text about the cleansing of the temple. And so as we get into this text this morning, we first come to the cursing of the fig tree, Mark 11, verse 12. Let me read it for us here. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and they saw in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Here, The story starts in the morning with Jesus and his disciples making their way back from, probably back from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Jesus is hungry. So on the way back, he looks for some fruit on a fig tree, but he finds none. So Jesus curses the fig tree, even though... The text says at the end of verse 13, you see it in your Bible at the end of verse 13, it says, even though it was not the season for figs. See that there? And So as we we come to this text, we we ask questions about what is Jesus doing here? What are his actions in the story? And when some people come to this text about Jesus cursing a fig tree that really shouldn't have been producing fruit, but he does anyway, because that's no fruit. Some scholars lose their mind in this text and they get upset with Jesus. They call him unjust or vindictive in his treatment of the poor little innocent fig tree. Okay, honestly, I'll give you a few examples here. They're suggesting that Jesus commits some sort of like grievous sinner or something. So here's, here's T.W. Manson, he's a Roman Catholic scholar. He was. He said this about this text. He says, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, this story is simply incredible. This was written a while ago. By incredible, he doesn't mean cool. He means it's without credibility. The story has perplexed people. What's going on with this fig tree? Another scholar by the name of Joseph Klausner says this. He says, this is a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. So what do we do with their objections? I mean, how, we, how do we treat this passage? What should we say? I'd say instead of resorting to such shameful and irreverent perspectives, you need to understand that Jesus had good reasons for doing this. What he's doing, of course, he's the son of God and He's good. It's awful. Two of his reasons uh, perhaps come immediately to my mind. First, although this is not the season for full ripe figs, at this time of the year, healthy fig trees should have early figs on them. There are textual indications in the text that this is a time of the Passover. So if you go to Israel even to this day a time of Passover, there would be no full ripe mature figs on trees, on fig trees, but you should find early figs. Uh, early figs, uh, little green uh, knops, or the, it's called uh, pagum during the early season. And these, these, these fruit, this fruit is edible, and many locals know how to harvest them. Okay, so the main fuller crop tastes better and comes a few months later, so Mark's comment is justified. It's not the season for figs. But secondly, Mark's comments do help us understand this. I'm reading through this story. I think Mark's comments, and this little comment about it's not being the season for figs, pushes the reader to try to figure out what's going on. Like, what's going on in this text with Jesus and this fig tree? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem normal. And so what it does is it pushes us to the next part of the story where this is going to be, it'll become clearer to us or to an alert reader of why Jesus did this with the fig tree. And so to answer the Alleged injustice. It's not Jesus is not being unjust, but to answer the alleged injustice, one comes to the middle of the story in the sandwich of Mark here into verses fifteen through nineteen, and I want to read these with you as well. Look down your Bibles in verse fifteen. Second part of the story is the purging of the temple. It says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I'll just make a few statements before we get into this. Uh, regarding the tree, a, a tree that is healthy produces good fruit. A tree that is diseased produces diseased fruit a tree that is really unhealthy produces no fruit but the same thing is true not only of trees it's true of people and of groups of people and spiritual fruit as a person is known by his fruit does that sound familiar he says a person will be known by his fruit As a person is known by his fruit, so too is a nation. In this case, the unhealthy fig tree, I think, is an illustration of an unhealthy Israel and temple worship. So what I want to do is I want to look through verses 15 through 19 and try to make sense of what Jesus is doing in the temple in this day. And to do this, we have to work through a a few subjects that I think will will help us uh, see what's going on. First of all, first of all, I'm going to give you a basic layout of the temple. It's not going to be like a visual tour or anything. You're just going to have to go over to Israel, you know, and, and, uh, or look at some good maps or something, good, good illustrations to do this. But a, a basic layout of the temple. Uh, first of all, uh, the temple kind of revolved around its, its central spot, the Holy of Holies there in the, the taller place in the picture in front of you, the Holy of Holies. This was a special dwelling place of God on earth. Of course, this was a place that only at certain times of year a priest could go in and out to perform sacrificial duties. Most Israelite people could not go in there, for the Shekinah glory of God at times would dwell in the Holy of Holies. If you were to leave the Holy of Holies, you would go down into the first of four courts that surround the Holy of Holies. Uh, The first one is called the Court of the Priests. The court of the priests. Here the priests would offer sacrifices on the altar. And and so just outside of the court of the priests was the court of the Israelites. Uh, of course, uh, you might think, well, who would be able to go into the court of the Israelites? If the court of the priests, if priests could go in there, who could go into the court of the Israelites? You might think Israelites, right? Uh, however, it was just a certain type of Israelite person. It was a, a, a male Israelite person. Okay, so uh, male, circumcised Jewish people were allowed to go into the court of the Israelites, 15 steps would be then built, they were built down in a semicircle pattern that would lead from the court of the Israelites to the court of the women. Who do you think would be in there? Women, yeah, thank you. <laughs> women, but a certain type of woman again, Jewish women. This is as close as women could get to the presence of God in the Old Testament era, the Shekinah glory of God and the Holy of Holies. So as I said, the multiple steps below, they could actually look up into the court of the Israelites, see all the men worshiping there closer to the, the, the presence of the Holy of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, but they're in the sixty yard by sixty yard court here. Court of the women. There's one other court, and for this, you'd go outside. You'd go outside of the temple proper. You'd go into the court of the Gentiles. This is as close as a Gentile god could get to the presence of God, the Old Testament, worshiping him. As a matter of fact, there was a sign that archaeologists have found that was put right on the, the, court, the outer court of the temple that said that if a Gentile went any farther than the court of the Gentiles, they'd be sacrificing their life. So men and women, as you come to the court of the Gentiles, this is where the events are occurring this day. As we see uh, the, the animals and, and everything, they're occurring in the court of the Gentiles, and that's important for us uh, to understand in our text. It's also important, with that understanding in mind, to, uh, to, to know that exchanging money and selling animals in the temple was a new practice. It's not like something Jews have been doing for years. In fact, extra-biblical sources tell us that there's a high priest by the name of Caiaphas who thought of this idea in about 30 A.D., 30 AD. Up until this time, animals, livestock, exchanging of money would, would occur on the Mount of Olives. But for convenience sake, Caiaphas in 30 AD says, let's bring it into the court of the Gentiles. Let's have it there. Okay, and so this Jesus' actions then in the temple this day are occurring within one or two or three years of that change by the high priest to bring these things into, into the temple precincts in the court of the Gentiles. So next we want to look and see what Jesus does here. So what does Jesus does? You, you've got pigeons, you've got oxen, you've got livestock, you've got cages, you've got money changers, you've got people selling and buying things in the court of the Gentiles. So what does he do? And I'd say it this way. Jesus really cleans house. Remember when you were a, a child and you would, your parents would leave for a short while and they would leave you in charge of the home with your brothers and sisters? I'm going to portray a little bit of my bitterness here with my family. No. You know, in this scenario, if you remember back into those days, it didn't take very long for the house to completely deteriorate maybe just a few hours. For some unexplainable reason, you pull out every mug and bowl from the cup cupboards, and you leave them on every hard and soft surface in the living room and kitchen. Dirty. You leave wrappers in the floor. And again, for unexplainable, non-scientific reasons, you take every blanket from the house and you leave them all throughout the bottom floor of the home. Perhaps you don't even sense the gradual mess that's growing around you until mom comes home. Mom comes home. When she walks through that door, It's time to clean the house. Jesus had surveyed the temple the night before. As he comes into the temple, he's going to clean house. And so we see his actions here. I would describe them in three ways as I just look at the text. First thing Jesus does is he stops them. He stops them. Enters the temple, drives out the buyers and sellers in the temple, overturns tables and seats Money going everywhere. Perhaps depending on what you do with John 2 in that text and whether that's this this same temple purging or not, coins, people, stampedes of animals. And the text, our text says, and he would not even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You see that in your Bible there, verse verse 16. The last description of verse 16. Would not even allow people to carry things through the temple. To me, it seems then that that means that Jesus was repulsed by some people who were taking shortcuts through a court of the temple as they're carrying things from one place to another. And why do I want to go around this large building? I got the stuff in my hands. Why should I? Oh, I'm just going to go through the temple with it. I said, so Jesus, no. Stop. You're not going through here. Jesus causes a commotion in the temple purges it so he stops them Then the second way i describe this is he reminds them what does jesus do about their worship this day he reminds them of something he reminds them of what the scriptures say about the temple so what he does here is he quotes an Old Testament text. This is uh, Mark eleven seventeen. 17. I want you to see this here. He's, he's reminding them at the first part of this. Look at the verse. It says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Stop. With that statement, Jesus is reminding them of Isaiah's vision for the temple. Isaiah got his vision from God himself. This is a text that Andrew Stroud read for us this morning. And by quoting this passage, Jesus is reminding them that God intended the temple or tends the temple to be a safe haven for outcasts and for foreigners too. God's original purpose for the temple included it, being a place for the nations to be able to worship God. But these Jews had turned the court of the Gentiles, the very place devoted for nations to worship God, into a marketplace. Basically making it Impossible for a Gentile to worship. Can you imagine worshiping with a pigeon right above your head? Cattle and livestock all around you. Greedy money changers. People buying and selling. Jesus reminds me. God's intention for the temple was that even the nations could come and worship God in this place. But look what you've done. And so I say, He reminds them. He stops them, reminds them of Isaiah, and then He does one more thing He rebukes them. He rebukes them. You say, Well, where do you see that in the text? Same verse, Mark eleven seventeen. 17. Just keep reading, okay? But you have made it, the temple, a den of robbers. There he takes a phrase from Jeremiah 7 and verse 11. And uh, from that point on, but you have made it a den of robbers. You have Jesus' commentary on the situation. Let me me tell you what I think about this. Where do you think God's purpose for the temple, both now and in the future, during the Millennial Kingdom, will be that the Gentiles will worship in this place? But let me tell you what you're doing. You've made it a den for robbers or bandits. I think this imagery is important to understand as well. If you're going to walk away from this text saying you understand it. The den, of course, would be a place where robbers would retreat after having committed crimes. It's their hideout, you might say, or their uh, place of security, a refuge. So Jesus is not necessarily saying, you're committing all these crimes in the temple. He's saying, uh, this is not a temple. This is a place where robbers and bandits come to feel safe. Say, robber's den. So when people come to this temple, another way of saying this, I think, is it's like coming to a leafy tree without any fruit on it whatsoever. After Jesus' actions here, the scribes and the chief priests are incensed, and they want to kill him, but they don't because they're afraid of him, and the people's response. So Mark explains then that Jesus and the disciples leave the city and probably head back to Bethany, the the end of this day is over, but Mark's story is not done. Okay, there's still a part of this left, and I think the end of the story is very important. Uh, so in verses 20 through 25, uh, he will tell us what takes place on the next morning. The next morning, I call it the withering of the tree. Look at verse 20. So, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And people remembered and said, Rabbi, or and Peter remembered and said, If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So, again, the very next morning they're walking along here. Peter declares, he looks over. He's the observant one, right? He's at least the one with the big mouth. And he says, Look, the tree that you cursed is withered away the whole way down to its roots. And again, this is where it becomes clear to us, if we haven't been looking, that the fig tree is an object lesson. The fig tree symbolizes the condition of the Jewish people and the condition of their center of worship, the temple. They bore no fruit for God and thus were soon to experience judgment and removal. Okay, but that's not the only lesson of the fig tree. As a matter of fact, the text goes in kind of a puzzling direction, verses 22 through 25, at least it was to me. And these verses, after Peter's observation, Jesus basically tells them to do three things. First thing he says is, have faith in God. Have faith in God. You too need to have faith in God. And he's emphasizing the the, the value of faith and the believing that God can provide and do even impossible things like Jesus believed he could curse the fig tree, or he could you know, cause the fig tree to be with her, and the very next day it happens. So Peter and others have faith in God. His second application is ask in prayer believing. Not only have faith in prayer, but, but vocalize that faith. Pray, and when you pray, believe that God can do this for you. And then his final one is forgive others so that, so that your prayer is heard. So we come to this part of the text, you know, we've got this whole narrative, the fig tree dies, everything's happened. Uh, My big question for us to consider at the end is, what do these three lessons have to do with a withered fig tree and a corrupt temple? I just, in the last five minutes here, I just kind of walk you through this and tell you what I think is going on. It appears to me here that Jesus is emphasizing the right kind of prayer for his followers. Okay, so Jesus takes a moment. I don't think this is just like odd verses kind of strapped on to this narrative. I think these are important. These are from Jesus, and this is the way he would apply it. Okay, so he's emphasizing the right kind of prayer for those who would be his followers in the new covenant. And I would describe it this way. I think the right kind of prayer is prayer that believes. Regardless to what you might think about verse 23 in the text, it's clear that Jesus pushes his disciples to a type of prayer that's filled with faith, f- filled with belief that God can do whatever he, he wants. I mean, the only thing that limits God's power to answer our prayers is his righteous character. Nothing else. And so behind our request stands God and his amazing power. So Jesus is pushing us here. The right kind of prayer is prayer that believes. But then I think, and this is a big point of the text, I think the right kind of prayer is prayer in community of followers as followers of Jesus Christ or the community of reconciled believers instead of in the temple. You remember Isaiah's vision for the temple? What does Isaiah say? God desired for his house of worship to be a place of prayer for the nations. But that was not happening in this temple. The nations had no place to worship in the temple because of everything that was going on. So, I think what Jesus is doing in verse 22 through 25 here is he's beginning to foreshadow uh, that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. He's actually going to come right out and say it probably the next day in Mark chapter 13. He's walking out of the temple and the disciples are looking at the temple and he says, not one stone will be left upon another here. I think Jesus is foreshadowing and will eventually come right out and say that the temple itself will be destroyed. So that brings up a question from the disciples and any followers of his. And the question is this. If the temple is destroyed, where? Will people be able to pray to you? Where will people be able to? What's the appropriate place of prayer? I think that's the, the reason for verses 22 through 25. I'll read one commentator I think was really helpful to me in this passage who helped me understand what's going on here. He says verses 22 through 25 are not an alien intrusion into the context, they're not just like verses taken out of nowhere. For the imminent loss of the house of prayer in Jerusalem, verse 17, poses the urgent question of where the tradition of prayer is then to continue. If this temple is going to be destroyed, where is prayer going to continue? He says, the implication of these verses thus appears to be that the Jerusalem temple is condemned and replaced by what? Or better, who? by the praying community of followers of Jesus Christ. So in these verses, I think what Jesus is emphasizes is the corporate prayer of his followers. I mean, all of the yous that are mentioned in text, verses 23 through 25, are all plural. I think he's emphasizing the value of corporate praying. Believers praying together, not in a temple, but gathered together in community. And so, men and women, as we close our attention to this text, we close our attention. Remember, Jesus cares for the nations, and he has provided a way for God to hear their prayers. As New Covenant followers of Jesus Christ, our prayers are heard on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for our sins. His shed blood. So as we gather together in community and pray together, we're able to pray to a God who hears. Although this is true for us, I wonder how much better the typical comfortable evangelical church is today than the Jews in the temple on Jesus' day. People are rushing back and forth in the foyer, talking, chatting, doing their thing, their traditions. They rush into church late with minds full and distracted or groggy from the night of fun they had before. And so men and women, I ask this question very personally of Colonial Baptist Church. If God were examining Colonial Baptist Church, would he find spiritual fruit in our church? Would he see believers from the nations living in community, in harmony, praying together in community, genuinely worshiping God together as reconciled believers? Or would he see emptiness? Lack of fruit. If God looked at you, would he see a person who loves the text, both publicly and privately, bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Would he find the fruit of relational harmony in your home this week if he followed you, if God saw you, which he does, if he sees you, will you see the fruit of relational harmony in your home? Would he find a believer who consistently says no to the lust of his or her flesh? Does God see you, does he, when he looks at you, does he see the fruit of someone who loves to learn and talk about Jesus? Does he see the fruit of someone who communes daily with God in prayer? The God who's made it possible for us through Jesus to be heard. Men and women, fruit reveals the true condition of a person and of a church and by God's grace you will not see emptiness in our soul we're in the heart of this church let's pray together father we're thankful for this narrative I'm thankful for the way people did pay close attention to the word Thankful for the holy text of Scripture, every word given to us by God. We're thankful for these two stories how they work together. The withered fig tree had no fruit; it was cursed, and then withers and dies. Then the barren temple, the place that looked vibrant, looked exciting, looked thrilling. There's commotion. There's conversations. There's activity, but there's also death and no fruit. Lord, thank you for the two stories. And I pray that as we examine the health of this church and our role in this church as an individual believer, that we would examine the fruit of our church and the fruit of our own soul. Lord, may we not sit back in judgment over money changers. People were distracted from true worship when, in our own lives, our own lives, we bear little visible fruit. The grace of God in our lives, Lord, Lord, help us to be fruit bearers for the cause of Christ. And Lord, as uh, these last verses, we try to understand this section about the importance of prayer and praying, believing, and being reconciled for forgiving others so that we might be heard in our prayers, Lord, I pray that Colonial would be a church of a praying community To understand that you have made it possible for the nations to be heard in the person of Jesus. May we be a praying community but we need you to do this in our church. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.